Take your Bibles, please, and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And without any further review of the introduction to this sermon series, let's turn to Ephesians 3 and look at the next landmark. We have looked at five. We've seen that the King James Bible is a landmark that you young people need to hold to and we intend to hold to as long as we shall live. That Jesus Christ is the unbegotten God who is the only begotten Son of God in whom was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That baptism is by immersion only for those who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's often called believer's immersion or believer's baptism because we only baptize believers and we only baptize them one way. And that's by immersion. I'll remind you that William Screven in 1682 was put in jail in Kittery, Maine for preaching against infant baptism. And for that reason, he left the state of Maine and started that Baptist church on the Cooper River in Charleston, South Carolina in 1684. Number three, the kingdom of God has been here for 2,000 years. Jesus Christ is presently reigning. It's not a future prospect or hope. It is a present reality. The Israel of God has been, is, and forever shall be the elect people of God, of both Jews and Gentiles. Here's another one. Young people, here we go. A landmark that we can't move. And there's lots of men moving it. I mentioned it already. Instrumental music. And I shouldn't need to take more than two minutes because I've taught it to you before. We do not have instrumental music in our church because the Bible tells us to sing. Ephesians chapter 3, and I really meant Ephesians chapter 5, and I hope that you all understood that. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 5. We read it this week, for those of you that are following the, uh, the reading program that my father sends out every day. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Amen. If the Lord wanted us to make melody in a box, on a guitar, or any other instrument, the Lord knows all about musical instruments because the Old Testament was full of them. But there aren't any mention in the New Testament because the type of religion is very different. One was outward, carnal, and sensual that appealed to the sense of hearing. The other is appealing to the soul, the spirit, and the mind of man. We sing with the spirit and we sing with the understanding. It doesn't say we sing with the spirit and we play noise on a box. And here it says the melody is from our heart. It's not on a box. It's not from a machine. And it says sing. Some would say, we're nitpicking. I got an email while you were sleeping last night. A gracious, gracious Christian brother asking if I'm not taking a matter of liberty and making it a rule for New Testament churches, which I'll answer as soon as I can get home. This is not taking a matter of liberty and making it a rule of judgment. I already asked you once. I've already mentioned to you once about Moses. The Lord said, speak to the rock. Moses smote the rock. It cost him dearly. David, with all the enthusiasm in the world, moved the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way. It was to be borne on the shoulders of the priests on staves that went through 
rings at the corner of that ark for that purpose. David had a new ox cart created for it. He called 30,000 princes of Israel together. He did it with all his might, but it was wrong, and God killed a man for it. And we could multiply those illustrations. God cares about details. When he says sing, we're going to be like Moses and not imagine that he meant play. We're going to sing. This is the number one reason why we don't have musical instruments. Because whenever we find about music in the New Testament, and there are nine references, they're all singing. And the Lord knows the word play. The Lord knows the words skillfully play. The Lord knows a long string of instruments because you can read them in the book of Psalms. But the book of Psalms was written for the Old Testament church. The New Testament is written for the New Testament church. And it's very different. They worshiped with noise on their ears. We worship with melody in our heart, understanding in our minds, and love in our spirits. Because it's a spiritual religion. So that's the second reason. The first reason is the Bible says sing. The second reason is the New Testament worship is in spirit, not in outward form, ritual, or noise. When anyone says, but what about Psalm 150? What about this psalm? What about that psalm? that has references to musical instruments. And don't you love David? Don't you love how David worshipped the Lord with instruments and singing? If the Lord wanted us to do it that way, He'd have said it right here. Amen. He'd have said it right here. When He brought up the word melody, He could have easily said, and making melody on your stringed instruments. But He said, making melody in your heart to the Lord. They think we're, we're, we're strange because we don't have musical instruments. And like I've said to you many times, Don't ever let them accuse you of being strange. They're strange in the light of history. Baptist churches didn't have musical instruments 150 years ago. You didn't have to be a primitive Baptist not to have musical instruments. And they don't have them to this day for which we're thankful. But prior to... Listen, Charles Spurgeon, the greatest Baptist preacher, as so many say, he he, uh, preached from about 1850 or 60 to about 1890... That was only 110 to 150 years ago. He didn't have them. The Wesleys, who wrote so many songs in our hymnals, they didn't have them. Martin Luther, who wrote songs, didn't have them. It was understood that that was a Roman Catholic invention, and all churches stayed away from them. Children, a landmark. God's given us a landmark. He's told us what noise He wants to come up out of this church. And I'll tell you something, I've been to churches, I've been in Bob Jones University Amphitorium where they've got those massive speakers hanging on chains over that auditorium and that organ's going and I love organ music and it doesn't match what we just did in here. Listen, I, I, I was ready to leap and shout to hear you singing the praises of Zion, the praises of Jesus Christ the way we just did. Two weeks ago when I was not with you, I was in churches that had the organ, the piano, and all that. And the clanging from those machines take the place of the singing voice and everyone just lets down and no one sings as loudly as we do here. It's a totally different sound. It's not special music that we want either. It's singing, speaking, and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's congregational singing where we're all preaching to one another and teaching each other. Don't you read those words? Don't you think to yourself, everyone in this room believes what we just sang. And it, so it, it confirms your faith. It's what the Lord wants to hear from His churches. If He wanted us to play, He'd have said play. 
if you want to play around with that and say that's being too nitpicky, well, he said the fruit of the vine and bread. If you want to play around with the word saying, then you should play around with the words fruit of the vine and bread. I think we should have cookies and milk. I love dipping Oreos. You can tell. But should we play around with those words? Should we play around? No way. Can we play around with those? Why do we understand that? But we'll play around with the word sing. That was the word beggarly things of the Old Testament. Weak, carnal, beggarly. Paul called them all those words and more. We've moved to a far better way of praising God. And it's not with boxes or machines or mechanical devices. It's with a melody in our heart, our minds fully engaged, understanding the words that we're singing and actually engaging and teaching one another. A piano can't teach a single thing. We've got to teach it to make the right noise by hitting the right keys at the right time. But we teach each other through the verbal expressions conveyed by our singing with a melody from our heart. Enough on that. There's plenty of information about that, and you've been taught that before. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 19. Acts 19. Verse 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons. And the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. If he had a handkerchief or an apron that touched his body, and it was taken to the sick or the devil possessed, the sick were made well, and the devil possessed were freed of their devils. Those are special miracles. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Church, brethren, another landmark is that we oppose tongues and healing in this generation and the previous generation and all the generations back to the time of reformation of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. That 40-year period of time is very important in the Bible and that is all the longer that tongues and healing were allowed as special revelatory gifts. When I say revelatory... Tongues, prophecy, wisdom, knowledge, those were all gifts for that time because they didn't have a completed Bible, a completed New Testament. Then there were signs and wonders which were like taking up serpents, drinking deadly things, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out devils. Those don't reveal truth. They're special signs and wonders to confirm the ministry of ignorant fishermen that they were teaching the truth. And once those ignorant fishermen had confirmed their word for 40 years and written down what God had given them, we had a New Testament and the gifts went away. The fastest growing denomination and religious phenomenon on earth today is the tongues and healing movement of Benny Hinn and all the others like him. When Benny Hinn sets up in Kenya or Uganda or India, they will have several million attend over a couple of day period. If you have ever seen the pictures of a Benny Hinn revival in India and see two million. For those of you that know sports, I'm from the town of the Big House. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan, where they put 111,000 or 112,000 in a football stadium on Saturdays. That's, that has been the largest congregation of any sort in the United States for a long time. But when we talk about two million, it just dwarfs that. They say they have to set up giant, giant video screens 
every 100 yards for the people to be even able to see Him. The largest churches in the world are not the little tiny Saddleback community or Joel Osteen's in Houston. They're the big charismatic churches in other places like Singapore, where Paul Cho's church, I believe, is over 500,000 members. Of course, they don't assemble in one place, and you never meet. You never meet more than 50 or 60 of them, but at least there's 500,000 members. But it's all based on healings, healings and tongues and other supernatural phenomenon. It started in 1900 on New Year's Day when Agnes Osmond spoke in tongues in Kansas and the man that got her to speak in tongues, Charles Partham and others, went to the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles and from there has come the charismatic movement. It's only 106 years old. Don't you ever fall for that. We saw that Paul was given the power of miracles and I've just told you in a shortened version because I'm not going to prove all my points here there's, a web, there's an article on the website that will give you all the information and proof you need. I said it went away at the end of 70 years. Let's look and see. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul writes to Timothy and says, Use the apron and the handkerchief that I mailed you to deliver you from your oft infirmities. No, he says, use a home remedy. Drink no longer water. But use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. What's that verse there for? If Paul could heal with a handkerchief, did, did Timothy get this epistle of 1 Timothy to be able to drink wine instead of water? I mean, was there something transported to Timothy? Why didn't he send him a handkerchief? Why didn't he send him an apron? Because Paul was losing his power to heal while he was writing First and Second Timothy. Look at Second Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 20. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Well, Paul, that wasn't very kind of you. If you had the power to heal and you loved, and you were supposed to love the brethren, you say it in every epistle you write that we're to love the brethren, why didn't you heal them? Because Paul couldn't heal them. The healing had disappeared. Brother Red made an, an interesting statement one night at supper with some people that we were talking to about the charismatic movement. He said, have you ever noticed about these healers? When they come in, they, when they come into town, they go to the Colosseum instead of to the hospital. If they really want to heal, why don't they go empty the hospital instead of putting on a show in a Colosseum? says a lot right there, doesn't it? That their motives are not pure. If they really wanted to heal, they'd get right in there like Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda and healed. They'd go and heal those that are truly ill and sick, not those that have passed the three stages of screening that Benny Hinn has at his revivals. Do you think you can just walk up there and get in front of Benny Hinn? Some, some in our church would have already been there. And they'd have had a word of wisdom while they were up there. You can't just go meet Benny Hinn on stage and on camera. You go through screeners, and they are able to find the ones that are psychologically vulnerable to the crowd psychosis of those meetings, that they are able to get them up there so that when he breathes on them, they will fall backward and be slain in the Spirit. Don't you fall for any of that stuff. Those are not real healings. Those are fake healings. 
that has been documented. There have been people that have followed Benny Hinn around and gone and found those people that were supposedly healed of his crusades. And they weren't healed. The healing was for 40 years to confirm the ministries of fishermen. You can go through the book of Acts and Paul will be someplace. How about on the island of Melita? He's on the island of Melita and he said, what did he call those people that were there? It wasn't the nicest term, but they were barbarians. That means they didn't have any education and none of the Greek knowledge. And there he is around the fire and he puts some wood on the fire. And a viper comes out of the fire, latches itself onto them. The inhabitants of that island, those barbarians, knew that that was a fatal bite. And they all said among themselves, look at that. This murderer that got off that ship that just shipwrecked, this Roman ship of prisoners, this murderer, fates got him even here at our fire. Paul shook the thing off in the fire and didn't fall over dead. And then what, what does a pagan do at that point? He must be a god and falls down and worships him. You know, one moment he's a murderer that fates just had revenge on. The next moment he's a god and they want to worship him. You can read that. That isn't the only time in the book of Acts. Do you know what? You have a tendency to listen to someone who does something like that. When Paul or Peter or the other apostles could heal a relative of yours or heal you from some serious disease, you would listen even to an ignorant, illiterate, uneducated, Galilean fisherman. That's why those gifts were there. And they went away. Because we've got something perfect right here. We don't need any more revelation from heaven. You don't need a word of wisdom from me or a word of knowledge. We want the words of wisdom and the words of knowledge from God Himself. And we've got it in the New Testament. Every one of these points, I am not establishing it fully because I've done it before. And you can find the proof on our website. I want to remind you young people of the landmarks that God's given us and we don't want to stray from them. One more on this subject. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. The Greeks seek after wisdom, and the Jews require a sign. Remember that the ones that wanted a sign the most were the Jews, and there's a reason for that. God had told them the way to test a prophet was whether he could produce miracles or not. Now, producing of miracles was not enough to prove that he was telling the truth, because we've got Deuteronomy 13 that says God will allow lying prophets sometimes to do miracles to see if you're going to follow His Word or the Word of someone doing a miracle. I read that Pharaoh's Egyptian magicians did a few miracles by the power of the devil. Then they reached a point where they went over and said, Pharaoh, we need to have a private conference. What you just saw, it's the finger of God. Amen. Doesn't that get you excited? Oh, I'd have loved to. We, we have the Bible. We were a fly on the wall. Because we have an inspired account of what took place. What you just saw, we can't touch it. It's the finger of God. I want you to know on the technical scientific scale for tornadoes, number six, which is only seen once every couple years, is called the finger of God. Whenever you read about 100 mile per hour winds for a hurricane or something, that's nothing. When you get a tornado that's over 320, you have the finger of God. A tornado at 320 can take a piece of grass and drive it straight through a telephone pole. The finger of God. They recognize it, but they won't fall down and worship Him. Let's worship Him and love Him.
James chapter 5, verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. I'm asked, why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? You know, we have sick in here. I pray for them, but I don't come and anoint them with oil and pray over them. Why don't we do it? This is an apostolic sign gift. How do we know that? Because of the anointing of oil. There is, absol- there is absolutely no healing virtue in oil. That oil is there the same way that Jesus would do things like this. He would spit in a man's face. He would spit on the ground and make spittle and put it in a man's eyes. Everyone knows that those things don't heal. It was a dramatic demonstration of the power of God. And this healing with oil, it didn't say the Lord might raise him up. It said the Lord would raise him up. This is the power of God in a a miraculous sign and wonder through the anointing of oil. It is an apostolic sign gift that was given to the elders for 40 years. How do I know it's an apostolic sign gift? Because if you go back to Mark 10 and try to find where they ever used oil, it was the apostles that were told to anoint the sick with oil and to heal them. And they had the power to transfer that power to another person and give them gifts for 40 years. We do not practice this. This is written by James. This is written to Jews. It is not written by Paul to Timothy to Titus or to any Gentile church. It's still the truth of God for that generation. But it doesn't apply to us anymore. As soon as you start practicing that, I will prove, I will prove that you have misinterpreted it by following you around and watching you anoint and pray. Because it won't work. He will rise up right then and come off his bed. You'll heal him right there on the spot. The prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins that have led to the sickness, they'll be forgiven him. He'll be delivered from all that by this anointing of oil and apostolic prayer that God had for 40 years and then lifted. As the Jews, the Jews required signs. The Jews required these signs longer and got more of them than anyone else because they're the ones that had a duty to look for them. The Bible says, tongues shall cease. Tongues have ceased. And what's going on in charismatic churches today isn't tongues. That's gibberish. That's, that's just babbling. Tongues in the Bible were a very specific foreign language for a very specific purpose because there was someone there that needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in his mother tongue. And the apostles and those that came from them had the ability to speak the wonderful works of God as Acts 2 describes perfectly, fluently, in the language of that person. And if there was a person there that spoke Chinese, but the apostle was speaking Japanese, God would have also put an interpreter there that would interpret and translate the Japanese to Chinese so that the Chinese could hear the great works of God. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and see all the different rules that are laid out for the speaking in tongues, you'll know that the churches today that practice it do not follow those rules. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. 
We've just covered two more, instrumental music and tongues and healing. Much, much more could be said on both of those. But it's been said before. It'll be said in the future. All we're doing right now is reminding ourselves of ancient landmarks that are plotting out the way that we are going toward heaven. John chapter 1. This is the third landmark I want to give you right now. And this is a very important one. Regeneration, first, and conversion, second, are two very different things. To regenerate is to beget someone again. That is them being born again. That is the work of God. It is a creative act. It is instantaneous. It is supernatural in power. It is by the will of God. It is done instantaneously over with in one nanosecond of time by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Then there's conversion, which is the lifelong process of being conformed more and more perfectly to the gospel of Jesus Christ and His rules for our lives. Peter, when he denied the Lord, needed to be converted. Now he'd been preaching for three and a half years as a chosen apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom Jesus had said, Flesh and blood hath not revealed this to thee, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. He was a born-again child of God, but he needed to be converted from his fear, his presumption, his pride, and his impetuousness. And he was. He was humbled, then he was converted, then he strengthened his brethren. He was brought back. He was converted, reformed, transformed back into being a faithful disciple. We separate those two things. This is one of the most distinguishing points about our church. Regeneration is the work of God, and we can't influence it at all, and it has to occur first before there's conversion in which we are involved by being faithful to the Word of God and believing it and obeying it. This one must follow this one. Without regeneration, no one can be converted except in some outward, inadequate way. That doesn't mean a thing in heaven. It's all, they only have an outward form of religion. For everyone that's born again, the degree that they're converted varies from Abraham to Lot. Depending on their faithfulness, God's mercy, the pastor's faithfulness, and other factors. John chapter 1. Just a couple of reminders. Verse 12. Verse 11. Let's get verse 11. John 1, 11. He came unto His own, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1.12 is quoted often in many churches, but it doesn't end with a period because John 1.13 is explaining it. They were born not of their will of the flesh, not of their will of man of parents, godparents, pastor, or anyone else, soul winner, nor of blood, but of God. It is God's choice to regenerate, and then they receive Jesus Christ. Then they believe on Him. And they must be born again first, as this describes here in John 1 and verse 13. John chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto Nicodemus, John 3, 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
the reign and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ as being the prophesied Messiah, the seed of the woman, the deliverer of our souls from the wrath to come, the Son of God, the ability to see that is dependent upon being born again first. Do you know most of the Christian world in our city wants to go out and present the kingdom of God to people in the hope that they can get them born again? But it says, except a man be born again, he can't even see it. How will you convince a man to believe it and obey it when he can't even see it? Oh, this children, Young men, do not ever let this church move away from regeneration being the work of God that comes before any part of conversion. Conversion is our lifelong process of being conformed to the Word of God. Every time we get together, we want to be converted a little bit more toward a perfect man in following Jesus Christ. They're two very separate things. And they've been confused by the most esteemed theologians. They mix the two until they use the words interchangeably as synonyms, which the Bible does not do. The Bible uses the word convert in James 5, 19 and 20, where it says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, it's brethren that's being addressed and it's erring from the truth and it's getting them back into the truth that is the definition of conversion. It's not if there are lost in your city that need to be born again and you get them born again, then you can know that you've saved a soul from death and hid a multitude of sins. It doesn't say that. It's brethren converting one another back to the truth because we wander out of the way of righteousness from time to time. Regeneration means to generate again. For a person to be born again, only God can generate a birth. You didn't have anything to do with your first birth, and you don't have anything to do with your second birth. It's the choice of God in both cases. It's by His sovereign power. And He will will regenerate every single one of His elect. Conversion is our work. That's why we preach the Gospel. For God's regenerate elect to hear the Gospel, they're the only ones that can see it and understand it. They're the only ones that hear it. They're the only ones that will believe it. And we preach it for them. That they can hear it and know what their Savior has done for them. And that they can follow Him in obedience. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. If you're flesh, how are you going to become spirit? It's got to be by an act of God that gives you spirit. Because by your first birth, all you are is flesh. Whenever you hear someone appealing to someone to make, an in, to make a decision in order to be born again, they're laying a condition upon a person in the flesh to leave the flesh and get in the spirit. The only way you're ever going to do that is if God regenerates you by you being born again with a new spiritual man. The natural man, when he hears the gospel, he thinks it's foolishness, 1 Timothy 2.14. The spiritual man, when he hears the gospel, is able to discern all things. 1 Corinthians 2.15. We could go on and on. This is one of the most important points. This is where we differ from the Calvinists. Regeneration is God's work. Conversion is our work. Regeneration takes place first. Conversion takes place next. Regeneration can occur way over here, and conversion might be days, months, years, or decades later. And it can be in all sorts of degrees from an Abraham to a lot. God hasn't guaranteed the amount of conversion of anyone. 
If you want to be a stubborn, rebellious child of His, He can chasten you and take you right out of this world in judgment, in the ignorance of your soul, which He did to many, even the New Testament. There were many that were sleeping at Corinth. And that means they had died in their impenitence and their abuse of the Lord's Supper. Yet, Paul says, that was God's chastening upon them that they would not be condemned with the world. One more. John 6. You young men, you have older men in this church, that whenever we're reading the writings of the sermons of any man, we're always looking. Does he understand that regeneration and conversion are two different things? Does he know that the one has to precede the other? Always looking. It's a huge doctrinal difference. To think that you can go down the street and believe in your heart that everyone on the street is not born again, and if you were eloquent enough or handed out enough goodies the people could invite Jesus into their heart and be born again is totally contrary to the New Testament. Paul was always going places where there was a high probability of finding regenerate people. That's why he went to synagogues. He didn't go to brothels. That's why he went to a riverside in Philippi of Macedonia because there was prayer want to be made there. He went to find praying people Because that gives the indication that they may be born again. Like Cornelius, who prayed to God always and gave alms to the people. And God heard him and accepted those gifts and heard those prayers. Because he was already born again before he ever heard of Peter. Peter just helped him figure out that if he got down in water and was baptized in the picture of Jesus Christ, there's a way he could please God and answer him with a good conscience. Peter preached enough gospel before the baptism that Cornelius would have had a good conscience that Jesus Christ had washed away all his sins. John chapter 6. Jesus said, in verse 38, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will. John 6:38, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. This is an ancient landmark that our fathers have set for us. Our fathers, the apostles. Jesus Christ died for the elect only. Jesus Christ died only for those that God had given Him and He wasn't going to lose a single one of them. Jesus died only for the elect. He did not die for the whole world trying to save the whole world. He died for the elect guaranteeing the salvation of all the elect. Chapter 10. Same book. John chapter 10. I wish those people that like the big John 3.16 signs in football stadiums would read the rest of the epistle. John 10.26 But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Can you believe Jesus saying that? But ye believe not. You know, I was taught for the first... 18 years of my life that you believe in order to become a sheep. But Jesus said, unless you're a sheep, you can't believe. Now, which order is true? Do we believe to become a sheep, a little lamb of Jesus? Or do we have to be a sheep first? Then we believe. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you, Lord. These are our landmarks. 
But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. The point I want is, in verse 28, Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life. In verse 29, He explains where they came from and how those that group was selected. My Father, which gave them me. John chapter 17. We're about to come to the Lord's table. This is not some death that Jesus died in the hope that someone might be saved. This is a death that Jesus died for you by name. He had your name in the book of life before the world began. When we come, when you take that cup and when you eat that bread, He died for you. He knew everything about you. He was purposing to create you for His glory, the glory of His grace, and the praise of His will. This is not just some little ritual that we go through that Jesus died for all men in the hope that some might be saved by saving themselves. It's wonderful truth and it helps us at the Lord's table. John 17, verse 2. Jesus said in His prayer just before His death, He said in verse 1, Father, the hour is come. Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee, as Thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as Thou hast given Him. Not a single one that was given to Jesus Christ will not get eternal life. And not anyone that wasn't given to Jesus Christ will get eternal life. Jesus Christ will give eternal life to everyone that God gave Him to save. That's all in the Gospel of John. And we could go elsewhere. You know, some of you are memorizing Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 says that if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, all what are partakers? All sons are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Who wants to run into that text and try to prove to me that God loves all men? He makes a difference between sons and bastards. And how do we become sons? Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we were predestinated under the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to Himself. It's by God's choice. You say it's not fair. No, it's not. It's not fair that God would save anyone. It's pure grace and mercy because He should send us all to hell like He did the angels that sinned. When we come to the Lord's Supper, I'm cheating and giving you another one. It's going to be this fast. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we practice closed communion because we understand that the nature of a local church government in considering some in the body and some out by the, degree that, by, by the degree to which they agree with us in doctrine and the degree to which they are living a righteous life, a public righteous life, is our responsibility in the church. So we practice closed communion because it's at the communion table that we put some out and take some in into which we are in common union. Right. And there are many more things that could be said about why we practice closed communion. The churches today have gradually fallen from closed to close. Close means if you're in our denomination, that's good enough. To open, we don't care who you are. Anybody that comes in the door can have it. But in, the, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a great deal of apostolic authority put on that Corinthian church. You make sure that everyone that comes to that table 
is eating with you, eating with you at that table in the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right. So we practice closed communion. We use grape wine, not raspberry wine, and not grape juice. We use grape wine. We use unleavened bread because it's not tainted with the figurative leaven of sin. We use one lump because 1 Corinthians 10 tells us to, and we tear that into a piece for each of us and to show the Lord Jesus Christ one body being torn in His sufferings. That's another landmark. We believe that regeneration and conversion are two separate things. One, the work of God, and one, the work of man with God's blessing. That Jesus died only for the elect and was not out trying to save all men, but those that God had given Him before the world began. That singing is the rule for music in the New Testament church. That tongues and healing have gone away after the time of Reformation. And that the Lord's Supper is our special supper together around the Lord Jesus Christ.